Well, uh, please turn to Ezekiel chapter 47, which is page 880 of the Church Bibles, and hopefully also on inside uh, your service sheet is an outline. Uh, I think it's about a year since I managed to do one of these, so I finally managed it again. Very proud of it. Uh, so please take that out. Even if you make a paper aeroplane with it, at least uh, make some use of it. And that will uh, hopefully help you as we go through this passage, Ezekiel chapter 47. Now just uh, as you're finding uh, chapter 47 and that outline, let me begin by asking you a question. What do you think is the big difference between the Garden of Eden, uh, the very first moments of our world, the first days of creation in the Garden, the man and the woman, what's the difference between that moment and this moment? Our world, 2008. What's the big difference between the two? I mean, if we were to look back to those first days of creation, those first days in the garden that that God himself describes as very good in the first chapter of the Bible, if we were to look back in those early chapters and see the moment described for us, there'd be many things that we'd want to point to to say why it was very good, why it was so much perhaps better than the moment we live in. Perhaps as we turn to Genesis 2, we'd we'd want to say that it was a place of life. Again and again in the descriptions you see water everywhere, life everywhere in the garden. Is that what made it such a very good place? Or perhaps we'd want to turn to the fact that it was a place of provision and purpose, that everywhere you looked there were trees that were good for food, where we were free to eat from them that we ourselves were in this garden and we were given purpose, that we were able to cultivate, able to work, able to make things, able to enjoy it all. Is that what made it so very good? Or perhaps it's just the beauty of the place, the lushness of the garden. We're told, yes, there were trees that, that were functional, that were good for eating the fruit of them, but we're told also that they were pleasing to the eye. And the gold that was in the garden, we're told it was the good stuff. Now, I wasn't aware that there was bad stuff when it came to gold, but this was the good stuff. And there was onyx, there were pearls, there was beautiful blessing wherever your eye turned. Is that what made it so very good? Well, while these things are good, perhaps even very good, you could in fact point to most of them and see them in our world circa 2008, couldn't you? Purpose. There are still trees everywhere, trees good for eating, water. We're still uh, purposeful creatures, we're still able to cultivate, able to make things and there's still plenty of beauty, isn't there? Last week I was driving through the Hope Valley, first time I'd been there around Edale and just seeing the sweep of the hills, I'm not sure if they're fully mountains around there but just the spectacular scene of it. And I think back to some of the areas uh, where I grew up, the, the beach D.Y. On, in the northern suburbs of Sydney, this amazing reef break that breaks two ways. It's really unusual and just a spectacular scene if you ever get the chance to see it. Our, our world is still a place of beauty and life. Well, especially this time of year, don't you see life everywhere as, as the trees that were, were lifeless, seemingly anyway, suddenly bud green all over the place. And then there's human life. I was hearing this week of uh, Martin and Susan Beardsley who are part of our congregation who've had their first child, Josiah Edwards Martin Beardsley. What a great name. Life everywhere. And so you could point to our world and point to the garden and say, well, they're both very good. Well, what's the difference? What's the big difference? 
Because in a very important way, our world is not like that garden. And aren't we most aware of the difference, the strangeness between the garden and our world precisely at one point? That there in the garden, there was a direct presence of God enjoying the garden with humanity, speaking to the man he had made, caring for him, providing for him, an intimate fellowship with him, walking in the cool of the day with the man and the woman. That's what makes the garden so very, very different to this world, so very good. God was there, right there in the midst of it all. And so we can look back to that that moment, those first moments in our world and see how much better they were than any other moment that's come since and yet the Bible would say that there have been other moments a bit like that first moment. Let me take you to another one just now, Psalm 48. It's worth turning to page 571. It was our first reading and we have a moment that in lots of ways was like that moment in the Garden of Eden. Psalm 48 is a song and it's a song written in a world far more like our world than the world of the Garden of Eden a world full of brokenness and full of sin and and its effects. And yet in the midst of a world like that, we have this amazing song, a, a song all about the city of God, Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And the psalmist can't help himself. He rejoices over this city. It's a spectacular city to his eyes. And again, we have to ask what made it so very good. Well, listen to the song he sang. Verse 1, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. In the city of our God, his holy mountain, it is beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. He goes on in verse 8 to say that they meditate on God's presence, the unfailing love of his presence. And by verse 12, so overcome with, with the greatness of this city, the psalmist can't help himself but say to the tourists, check it out. You want to see this city. It's so much better than any other city. And to be honest, at the time, there were probably cities just as spectacular as Jerusalem. And yet he wants them to check out every inch of it. And you see why in verse 14. For this is our God. It's his city. Forever and ever he will be with us. He will be our guide even to the end. What made Jerusalem so spectacularly good? God was there. That's where he chose to be met in this world. That's where he chose to be known. That's what made Jerusalem the joy of the whole earth. God was there. Now only when you see how very good Jerusalem was, God's city was, because the Lord was there, only when you can see that clearly can you appreciate the shattering, joy-stealing, hope-sapping news that we've been hearing about over these weeks summed up for us in one simple verse throughout this whole book, Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 21. A man escapes this wonderful city of Jerusalem and he came to Ezekiel and he says, the city has fallen, the city is no more, it is gone, ruins, rubble. Only when you see how very good Jerusalem was do you see how tragic that news is. Now we've spent the last few months exploring the implications of that for Israel and for our world and we've really seen chapter after chapter of the hopelessness that comes from that news. Chapter after chapter of unfaithfulness, of inhumanity, of the devastating effects of being in exile from God, being under his judgement. 
I hope you felt the weight of it. It's hard not to, isn't it? Week after week to be hit with this news. But we need to feel the weight of it. Both for Jerusalem and for this whole world. Because only when you see how very good things were back in the Garden of Eden do you feel the weight of the situation our world is in. That the God who was there, right there in the midst of that garden, is now the God whose wrath is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. And only when you see how very good things were in Jerusalem do you feel the weight of the exile, that their bones were dried up, their hope gone, cut off, they said. Now only when you grasp the enormity of this, what we have seen week after week over these months, can you possibly hope to measure the depths of God's response. Grace, deep, tangible, powerful, unfailing grace. That's his response. Now I don't know about you, but my problem with grace is that we can far too easily get to a point, or this is the point I get to, where I think I've got it covered. You know, we hear so much about grace in our Christian community that we think we understand it completely. We've, we've plumbed its depths. You know, I studied it as, as a second year subject at Bible college. There it was, Grace 101. Covered it. I've got lecture notes on it. I've got it sorted out and it's easy for all of us if we've hung around the Christian community for any period of time to feel that way. We can even have a catchy definition of, of what grace is. God's riches at Christ's expense and we think in about five words we've summed it up. But sometimes God takes you off guard Sometimes when you see his grace described in the scriptures, it it takes your breath away. And for me, that's what these last chapters of Ezekiel do, especially in light of what we've seen. This final look we're taking at Ezekiel, really the, the look from chapter 40 to chapter 48, which is the final vision that Ezekiel gets. All the way through these final chapters, there's an audacious question hidden underneath. Audacious, that is, in the in the face of human sin, in the face of God's judgment in the face of the fact that he has left his city, the question, what if the Lord was to come back? What are the chances that he'd return to his city? What what if that happened? What if God was to once again give us the gift of his presence? What would that be like? What would such a good thing mean for us? Well, quite simply, it would mean that there was hope, real hope, not, not sort of wishful thinking hope, not gee, wouldn't it be nice kind of hope. That's, that's the hope our, our world is used to. I was thinking about that during the week and I, I recall one of the great movies of all time, Dumb and Dumber. I'm not sure if you've seen uh, Dumb and Dumber. It's, it's one of those movies that's so immature, so stupid that you try really hard not to like it and not to laugh. But uh, maybe it's a sign of my immaturity, but I, I love it. I never get sick of it. It's, a, it's a, a, a silly movie. It's got two guys. Lloyd Christmas is the main character. What a great name that is, Lloyd Christmas. And then Harry, I've forgotten his surname. But essentially what happens in the movie, they've, they've got no, no real hope, but early on in the movie, Lloyd Christmas meets this woman, Mary Swanson. And he's so smitten by Mary, he's just desperate to ask her out. But he has to travel all the way across America, ends up in uh, Colorado, I think, And finally, near the end of the movie, after this ridiculous journey they go on on the smallest motorbike you've ever seen, they finally get to Colorado and he gets his moment, he gets his chance to ask Mary out. And this this is how it goes. Lloyd says, hit me with it, Mary. 
I've come a long way to see you, Mary. The least you could do is level with me. What are my chances? Mary's response, about a billion to one. Lloyd's response, so you're saying I'm in with a chance. (laughs) I love it. Total delusion. And our world is full of Lloyd Christmas moments. Billion to one hopes whether they be the hopes that might have been launched for many in this country with the budget in the last week or the hopes of reversing the environmental damage that we are doing or even the hopes of peace that we were talking about last week or the more personal ones, the more personal billion to one hopes. What are my chances? Well, chapters 40 to 48 ask a question just like that and yet the answer is spectacular because the vision that Ezekiel has given is of a vision of hope real, lasting hope. And in one sense the vision is quite simple. A new city and within the walls of this new city a new temple. And at first, uh, if, if, you, if you take the time to read through these chapters you'll get lost in the detail of this city. Amazing detail is given to us. But by chapter 43 we start to see what is so spectacularly good about this vision. Turn to chapter 43 of Ezekiel. Chapter 43 verse 1. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city and like the visions I had seen by the Kibar River and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gates facing east Then the Spirit lifted me up and it brought me to the inner court and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now if you can remember back that far, you'll you'll remember that Ezekiel began with a vision of the Lord appearing, appearing in his glory. But when he appeared at the start of Ezekiel, it was to shatter their hopes, their hopes that said even in exile that things were fine, that was business as usual. He appears again in chapters 8 to 11 we saw some weeks back. Again, this vision of God's glory in the old temple, there to reveal Israel's sin and there to destroy the temple and then leave it. But now, here in chapter 43, we have a vision of that glory once again. And what's he doing? He's coming back to the temple. The Lord is there. Now, why is that such good news? What difference does it make that the Lord was there? We'll turn uh, with me to what I think is one of the most majestic passages in Scripture. Now, if you ever wanted a, a picture of the difference grace makes, of how amazing grace really is, here it is, chapter 47 of Ezekiel. And once again, uh, Ezekiel, uh, for this vision, is given a guide to lead him through what he sees. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 47. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple. Ezekiel starts to look around this new city and this new temple and he becomes aware out of the corner of his eye of a small trickle of water, we're told in verse 2, flowing out from under the the temple. Literally the word there used is bottling out. It's, It's a tiny little amount of water. It's like a little glug, a little gurgle that you get out of a bottle of water. Tiny little stream, barely enough to drink. 
And having become aware of this gentle flow, the, the man now starts to guide Ezekiel away from the temple and they start to follow the flow of this water flowing from God's presence. The man leads Ezekiel in the path of the water and the two of them begin to measure the progress. Can you picture it? These two guys walking through the water, just just a trickle of water. The guide leading the way and and Ezekiel following. By this stage, been through so many bizarre visions, he's, he's just following without asking questions, I imagine by now. They begin to follow this stream and uh, the the guide measures it off, a thousand cubits and then he stops, 500 yards. He stops and he starts splashing around in the water, ankle deep. He says to Ezekiel, do you see this? Do you see what's happening? It was a gurgle back there, now it's up to our ankles. It was just a trickle. I can imagine Ezekiel thinking, you know, I'm not dressed for this. But the guide leads on another thousand cubits and, and they stop again and, and the guide's splashing about in the water but now it's knee deep. Ezekiel looks around wondering how this is happening. Makes no sense. Normal streams eventually run dry. They weaken, they thin out as, as they get further and further away and, unless some other stream comes in, some other tributary feeds into it. But as Ezekiel looks back, there, there's no tributary, there's no other source other than this new temple filled with the presence of the glory of the Lord. That's the stream's source. But the guide pushes on. Another thousand cubits and now they're up to their waist. I mean, that's the point when you're walking in water. If you're in the ocean, that you, it's hard to push against the tide, isn't it? Do you see this, Ezekiel, he says. He measured off another thousand. But now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. And he asked me, son of man, do you see this? Spectacular picture. Now if you remember back to chapters 8 to 11, how different is this tour of the temple to the one we saw there? Back in chapters 8 to 11, Ezekiel was dragged around by the hair as he saw this old temple. The guide kept saying to him, have you seen this as they went to room after room? seeing idolatry and the inhumanity and the insincerity of of God's people in relationship to their God and even with each other. Have you seen this, the guide said, and then he'd take him to another room and he'd say, you haven't seen the worst of it yet. But now the guide leads Ezekiel from this new temple filled with God's glory and he says, as the river gets deeper and deeper and wider and wider, have you seen this? Well, you haven't even seen the best of it yet. The two of them splashing around in this majestic river like a couple of kids. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Such joy. Eventually they stop splashing around and the guide leads Ezekiel to the bank to show him something even more spectacular, to show him the difference that this river is actually making. And so they trace back over the length of the river and they see on either side of this river huge groves of trees, trees of every kind, fruitful trees. This stream that that started as a gurgle is going to flow and flow and get deeper and deeper, we're told, all the way to the sea. And in this case, the sea probably being referred to is is the Dead Sea, the, the lowest surface on the planet. Perhaps the saltiest body of water in the, in the whole world, a body of water pretty much devoid of life. But as soon as this river meets this sea, the whole sea is made fresh, we're told, and it fills with life. 
Wherever this river flows, life happens. Life everywhere and fruit and healing and restoration. How good is this vision? All because the Lord is there. When God is present, so is life and fruitfulness and healing. This vision surpasses anything that they sung about in in Psalm 48. It's a river transforming the world. It's the grace of God pouring out from the threshold of his temple to the very ends of the earth. And as the vision finishes in chapter 48, we're given one final description of the new city that surrounds this temple. A wonderful city with, with a river in her midst. And the name of the city... Well, what else could it be? Chapter 48, verse 35. The name of the city, the Lord, is there. Do you see the grace of it? The wonder of it? The difference it makes? Do you see God's answer to the audacious question, what what if he was to come back? You know, it's the sort of question, it is the sort of the... The, the billion to one question where you're sort of opening the door, hoping for a glint of light, even no matter how faint it is, just some sign of hope and yet you open the door and light like you've never seen explodes into the room. That's the vision here. So over the top is God's response. So beyond what we could hope for. But how do we know that this isn't just another pipe dream? You know, the temple that, that is described in chapters 40 to 48 in, in amazing detail, it was never built. Yeah, they built another temple, but to be honest, it was a mini-me version of the original. And uh, the, the return to Jerusalem was never as bright as Psalm 48 sung off. Those who returned still waited for this vision to become a reality. And so is that all it is? A vision? One that fades? A river that turns out not to be some oasis in the desert, but just a mirage? Another false hope? Well, where do we see God making good on this promise, this vision? Well, jump uh, with me in for a moment into the flow of God's gracious actions on our behalf and measure it out with me. See how he delivers. I want to take you to three measuring points along the flow of God's grace. The first one is John chapter 2. It's page 1065 of the Church Bibles, if you turn to it. John chapter 2. You see God's answer, how he makes good on this vision. John chapter 2, starting at verse 18. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he's spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said and they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Where was this temple that Ezekiel saw, this great hope? When Jesus was raised from the dead, the temple filled with God's glory, filled with the glory of his only son, was built. All that Ezekiel's temple had stood for, all the substantial hope had been realised. God's presence once again opened up to humanity. You can sing Psalm 48 again to the ends of the earth. A second stop uh, along this river is John chapter 7, verse 37. It's page 1072. 
John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last great day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed him were later to receive. Do you see how this vision is fulfilled? What's the gospel word of the New Testament? Where is this temple built? Well, how amazing is John's testimony? Yeah, you ever heard uh, some sort of person say, my body is a temple? It's not something I, I say uh, too often, to be honest, because if it is, it's been desecrated uh, for some years. But uh, some people like to say that my body is a temple. I, uh, I, I you know, work out, I, I treat it as a temple. And John 7 says, that's true of you. Your body is a temple. The Lord is there. Whoever comes to Jesus and trusts him, the Lord is there. The Spirit is within him. The very blessing of God is poured out into that person. As human beings come to Jesus and they place their trust in him, they are being built into the very presence of the Lord. A final stop in the river, Revelation 21. It's page 1249. Revelation chapter 21. Now, so many of the images of these final chapters of Revelation are based on the vision that Ezekiel had seen. Picks up so much of what we see in chapter 47 and in the other chapters, but to be honest, it's even better. Because here at the conclusion of the Bible, on the very last pages of the Bible, John has given a vision of what God has in store for us, what the future holds. Revelation 21 verse 1. No doubt you'll know it well. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The city of God. But see how it surpasses even Ezekiel's vision? Flick down to verse 22. Revelation 21 verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The symbol has given way to reality. This is our hope. And the gospel we proclaim, the gospel we know and love, is the the very word by which God takes that hope and thrusts it into the hearts of men and women. In a world with, with so many counterfeit hopes as we've been seeing over these weeks, of people saying it in the words of one of the modern songs of our time, hoping for the best but expecting the worst. In a world where hope is at best manufactured or vague or dim or desperate, the gospel comes in and it shatters all those sort of hopes, the hopes we invent and it says the only way to know real hope is to know the God who promises solid hope. 
in such a world as ours, I wonder if we lose sight of that far too easily, the dimensions of our hope and what makes it so very good. This new heaven and this new earth, this city of God, this city whose name, well, what else could it be? The Lord is there. And just as we finish, let me uh, suggest three things that I believe would be more and more the case in each of our lives if, if this hope, if we saw it clearly, if we saw God's grace for what it was. If you're seeing God's grace clearly, this vision that we've had in Ezekiel 47, the first thing I think would happen, and this is just three, there's probably lots more things that would happen, is that we would see that the God revealed in scriptures is passionately committed to our good. Is that the vision of God you have? That he is committed to your good? Well, that's the God revealed in Ezekiel. The God who loves life, purposeful life, blessing and healed relationships. He loves to give us what is good, what is very good. And what's very good? His presence. And he loves to pour it out on us in ever-increasing measure. You know, our world is full of those who want independence from that sort of God, don't want anything to do with him. And perhaps even as Christians we we can feel that way from time to time as God infringes on our way of doing things, on our thoughts, on our purposes. We can feel hemmed in by him. But every time you feel that way, let me encourage you to remember this vision. God's ways are where freedom and blessing are found. Moving from those ways is like a plant deciding that it doesn't need water. God's way is to pour out his blessing on you, his grace on you, and his advice to you, swim in it. Second thing that would happen if we're seeing God's grace clearly, I'd want to be fit for his presence. And for me, here's the wonder of that ambition. God actually takes being fit for his presence, being good enough for his presence out of the equation. He gives himself to us out of his grace. And it is this grace, the joy of knowing that we can live with him, that he dwells within us, that we can please him, that we can honour him, that makes his grace so spectacular. And it is this grace alone and no other tributary, no other source that will in fact make us more and more fit for his presence as time goes on, purifying us as he is pure, teaching us to reject ungodliness because we are in the presence of God. And finally, if we are seeing God's grace clearly, if we are seeing this hope that is set before us clearly, this is the thing that kept coming into my head as I I looked at Ezekiel 47, if I'm seeing it clearly, then I will never leave the river. I'll never leave the river. I don't know about you, but I am captivated by this picture in Ezekiel 47 of two guys splashing around in God's grace. That's the picture. Exploring it, marvelling in it, rejoicing in it, savouring it. Could there be a better picture of the Christian life? Could there be a better life to live? And so, brothers and sisters in grace, this is what your life is all about. Delighting in the presence of the Lord, the goodness of it, the grace of it, the transforming, life-giving, purpose-bringing, healing goodness of it. And living this way is to know no day without the Lord's presence and to look forward to the day when you shall see his face. So swim in it. Now in a moment we're going to uh, spend some time praying but what I'd like to do just for a few moments is to give you some time to reflect on Ezekiel 47 for yourselves and the way we're going to do that 
you'll see on the back of your outline is uh, the words of a great hymn by John Newton, Glorious Things of You Are Spoken. Now we're not going to sing that together but we are going to hear it sung uh, for us, not live on a CD, but uh, please take the next few moments to reflect on Ezekiel 47, to reflect on God's grace uh, for you and then we'll pray at the end of that.